All right, well, this morning we continue our study of Hebrews and get into chapter 7. We've taken a detour here from the middle of chapter 5 through verse 6. Um, the writer had been building this, his argument about how Jesus is greater than anything else, greater than the prophets who spoke of old, greater than Aaron, greater than Moses, greater than angels. And he's building this wonderful argument about Jesus, and he introduces him as a great high priest and says, i got a lot to say about this, but you're not quite ready, so let's talk about something else for a while. Warns them against being sluggish, warns them about even the danger of apostasy, but then points them again to the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And by the end of chapter 6, verse 20, he reminds us that Jesus has gone as a forerunner into God's presence on our behalf, having become, he says, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this mysterious king from Genesis chapter 14. He's going to spend, really, all of chapter 7 explaining what this means and how that leads in chapter 8 to a better covenant, even. And so we begin this morning looking at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7. This incredible, mysterious person, Melchizedek, So let me read those verses for us again, and we will consider what they have to teach us here this morning. Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Once again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, let me pray for us. Let's join our hearts once again together in prayer. Father in heaven, be with us as we come before your word. Bless this time. We ask that when you speak to us here this morning that you would fulfill your own promise, that when your word goes out it doesn't return to you empty. Instead, let it accomplish everything you purpose for it. Let it be successful in everything for which you have sent it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us here this morning to overflowing so that our ears would be open to hear and that our eyes would be open to see all that you would have for us from your word this morning. Make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we ask all of this, as always, in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. 
Well, I think I've told some of you before, related the, the, the story of how when I was in, in college, in engineering school, I had to take a class on materials, and we learned about mostly metals and ceramics. Um, and that was a very interesting class, the molecular structure, what they do, how they work, and all that good stuff. But along with that class, I had to take another class that was one of my favorite classes in all of college. And it's a class that you wouldn't normally think, think of as being a, a, a boring, academic, bureaucratic, you know, academic college class. I don't remember the name of it. It probably had some boring, bureaucratic name. I thought of it, because this is what it was, Metal Shop. We had metal shop in college, and it was awesome. We got to play with metals. What do they do? How are they formed? And we put on all the equipment, and we played with all the tools, and we got to learn how to shape metal, how to form it, how to do things with it. We cut it. We melted it. We welded it. Got to work on a metal lathe and create a fine little tool. It's one of the funnest classes I had in all of my college time. One of the fun parts of it, one of the most intriguing parts, was we got to make a a sand cast. And we got to pour hot molten metal into that sand cast and make a casting. Uh, An incredibly cool process. Make a mold, pour hot metal into it, let it cool, and you've got something beautiful, perhaps, a statue, or something very practical. That's what a mold is for. It's used to make something. It might be from sand. You might use another material. But, but these molds, this, this casting process, is old. It goes back thousands of years in human history. You might have heard about you know, the lost wax method. You carve something in wax very finely, very appropriately, whatever you want it to be. You pack that in some very fine sand. There, make sure there are holes in which you can pour the metal, you pour that metal into the the hole, the wax melts away, the metal stays, it cools, you break away the sand and you've got a wonderful little sculpture or you've got uh, some useful tool. Now in in Reformed theology in particular, but but all branches of, of the Christian church recognize what we call types in Scripture. Types and antitypes is the formal way we talk about them, or types and the reality. Another way to think of it, because the word has this broader conception, is to think of it as a mold. A type is kind of like a mold. It's the pattern for the reality that comes later. It's that mold that you made in sand. It's that mold you made out of fiberglass or whatever it might be. The reality is what comes out of it. The mold then gives an idea of what's to come. It tells us the pattern of what's the, what the reality is really going to be like. And this is where the author is going now in, in Hebrews. At the end, again, of chapter 6, he's reminding us that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he points in the beginning of chapter 7 here to Melchizedek as a type of Christ, a pattern, a mold for the reality that came when Jesus Christ himself came. Going back even to chapter 5, Jesus doesn't appoint this role for himself, but God it was who made him a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
So the author is pointing us to this strange, unusual, unique Old Testament high priest and king, Melchizedek. And he's doing it so that he can teach us some very, very important things about who Jesus Christ is, our high priest, our king. Again, chapter 7 is, is one long unit, I think, a one long argument. And it, it is tempting to try and cover everything there all at once because it just flows and fits together so well. But there are things we can learn here in the first 10 verses, and I want to take us back to what the, the, the verses refer us to, Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. What do we learn from that encounter here in these verses? What's the author trying to teach us? And what he's pointing us to, and this is where the title of the sermon kind of comes in, is the greatness of this Melchizedek. As obscure as he is in Old Testament history, he is a great man and ought to be recognized as such. And he shows us how Melchizedek is great, and I want to consider that, we'll look at that, and then I want to turn from that and say, well, if this is a pattern, if this is a mold, if this is a type of the reality that we find in Christ, well, then what does it teach us about Christ himself? So Melchizedek, and then how Melchizedek points us to Christ. All right, so we'll look at the first 10 verses here. The heart of these first 10 verses is chapter 4. This is the hinge that these verses turn on. Verse 4, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. This is the hinge. Verses 1 to 3 point to this. The rest of the verses up to 10 flow from it. Verses 1 to 3, kind of a quick summary of events, but also some language that point us to how great Melchizedek was. And then 4 to 10 give more detail about this and emphasize the greatness of Melchizedek over Abraham and even over the priests as well. The section is marked off with the idea in verse 1, repeated in verse 10, that this all came about as Abraham met Melchizedek. Verses 1 to 3 begin with the meeting, move to the blessing that Melchizedek gives, and then to the tithe that Abraham pays. The rest of the verses up to 10 talk about the tithe, then the blessing, and remind us that this happened because Abraham, because and when Abraham met Melchizedek. All again to emphasize and point to this central idea. How great must this man have been to whom Abraham paid a tenth of the spoils of war. Melchizedek is one of those people, if we knew more about him, if we had a history of Melchizedek, his deeds, his exploits, the countries and kings that he conquered, the things that he did, maybe he would have acquired the title that other kings and rulers have acquired, the great. Melchizedek the great. The problem is we know almost nothing about this guy. So he's no Alexander the Great, he's no Alfred the Great, he's just Melchizedek. An obscure and difficult to pronounce name. (laughs) He's a bit of a mystery. He only appears twice in the whole of the Old Testament. In Genesis 14 that we read, 
and in Psalm 110, which we've already considered in this series on Hebrews. Uh, we'll consider it again in more detail, I think, a little bit next week. But Psalm 110, where the promise is made to the Son, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then the quote that we read later in, in chapter 7, I have sworn an oath, God swearing again, as we talked about uh, recently here in chapter 6 of Hebrews, God swearing by himself, I will make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Two mentions of Melchizedek. One, some events that happened. The other, a strange promise given to the, the son who is to come that he's going to be a high priest like Melchizedek. Very important events. From a biblical perspective, Melchizedek is a great man. He is Melchizedek the Great. And even the Jewish rabbis recognized the greatness and the importance of Melchizedek. The problem is they didn't know what to do with him. There's all sorts of weird speculative theories from the rabbinical literature about Melchizedek. Maybe he's an appearance of the archangel Michael. Well, but we're told he's a man, not an angel. Or he's some sort of eschatological figure who's going to usher in a great era of peace and righteousness. A jubilee of jubilees of jubilees, if you will. Um, and other various theories. There, there are references to Melchizedek in the writings of Qumran, in, in the, the writings of Philo, the Jewish philosopher, and of others from uh, the time of the New Testament. They just didn't know what to do with him. Their theories are all rather bizarre. Our author, the author of Hebrews, sees rightly the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek and the Messiah. Melchizedek is a type, a pattern, a mold that points to the reality <coughs> that comes in the Messiah. So what do we know about Melchizedek? Let's work through a, th- a few things. We know that he was a high priest and the king of Salem. Some debate about where Salem was, but there's really no reason to debate. It's pretty clear that Salem is Jerusalem. He is high priest and he's the king, something that's not allowed in the Mosaic Law. The priests and the priestly class is different from the king and the ruling class, but something that was common among other Old Testament peoples around the people of God. They would be God to, or, or high priest to whatever pagan God that they served. But we learn about Melchizedek, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that he's not a priest to some pagan God, but rather that he is the high priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham. We don't know why, we don't know how. Scripture doesn't tell us how or why. But this man, Melchizedek, worships and serves the living holy God of Scripture. Interestingly enough, he doesn't join in the battle of the nine kings, the four against five that's described in Genesis 14. But as Abraham is returning from his victory with the spoils of that victory, Melchizedek goes out, and they meet. (coughs) At that meeting, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The author recounts this in verse 1. 
and gave him bread and wine and pronounced a blessing, as we read from Genesis 14. And then in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says that Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything to Melchizedek. Tenth part of the spoils. That word apportioned is a very interesting and important word. He didn't give. It wasn't an offering. It wasn't a free will offering or a thank offering. It was a tithe. It was apportioned because it was due to Melchizedek. It was his. There's a sense in which Abraham gave Melchizedek the tenth because it was his portion by right of the spoils that Abraham had won. Melchizedek did nothing. He took no part in the war, but he's such an incredible figure. He's so honored by Abraham that Abraham apportioned as the king's right a tenth of the spoils of war. The king of Sodom is rebuffed. Take what's yours. I don't want any um, <clears throat> honor to go to fall on you because of what you gave me. But Melchizedek gets a tenth of the spoils, rightly and properly. So in verses 1 to 3, we're told some key things about Melchizedek. Why is he due this tenth part of the spoils? Well, the author points to his name. By translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Melchizedek is formed from two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Tzedek, or Tzedak, <coughs> which means righteous or righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. But then by position, by occupation, if you will, he's the king of Salem, king of peace. And Salem is just the anglicization of the Hebrew word shalom, peace, and all the ramifications of that great word. So this Melchizedek, key characteristics of his, who he is and of how he rules, righteousness and peace. This is a king to be respected. This is a king to be honored. And then <laughs> the author changes from what is said about Melchizedek, Melchizedek in the Old Testament to what is not said about him. There's a striking lack of information regarding Melchizedek, especially if we consider the context of Genesis. Some speculate that he also, like the four kings, is descended from Shem, but, but that's just speculation. We don't know. He may not be. He may be from another uh, foreign or, or more distant uh, line of, of genealogy. The author's point, though, is that there is no genealogy. There's no record at all of the ancestry of Melchizedek. No father mentioned, no mother mentioned. We don't know from whom he was born. We don't know when he died. Now we have to be careful about making arguments from silence where Scripture does not speak. But in this case, inspired by God, the author himself realizes, and this is what I think he realizes, this is why I think he can make this argument rightly, in a book full of genealogies, <laughs> packed with genealogies, where the very outline of Genesis is defined by that phrase that's repeated, and these were the generations of so-and-so, and these were the generations of, and these were the generations of. Melchizedek appears 
no genealogy, no parentage. In a book where we're told, at this age, so-and-so became the father of so-and-so, and at this age, he died, and so on and so on, over and over again, nothing about Melchizedek. In the context of Genesis, to have a man like Melchizedek appear, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, a high priest to God himself, and to be told nothing about who he is, is utterly remarkable. That's something to note, and the author does so. And what he draws from this is that Melchizedek's, the, the, the text telling us nothing about his birth or death, is a literary way of saying this man represents eternity. He, he, he never was born, he never died. Now, he's a man. He was born, he died. But literarily, Scripture is, is painting a picture of someone without birth, without death. And so the author says in Hebrews, <coughs> in verse 3, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he resembles the Son of God. It's a resemblance. It's a pattern. It's a mold. We shouldn't sit here and think, oh, Melchizedek has lived forever. No, that's not the point. His life and his lack of genealogical or, or, or any other information is just meant to be a little pointer that says, hey, a priest is coming who's going to live forever. And then what does Psalm 110 verse 4 promise? A priest who's going to live forever after the order of Melchizedek. He points to the Son of God. So Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and peace. Nothing of note about his birth or his death. And this points to Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Melchizedek is also a priest of God, able to confer blessing, worthy of receiving a tithe of Abraham's spoils. And the author says, this means he must have been great to be able to give blessing and then receive offering, receive a tithe from a man as great as Abraham, the patriarch, that's what he calls him. Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The founder of our race, he's writing to Hebrews. But it means something for us as Christians too. We are children of the promise because of faith, as Galatians tells us. The great Abraham was not as great as Melchizedek. And so there's this comparison to the Levites, the sons of Aaron. Sons of Abraham. If Abraham paid tithes, if he received a blessing, then even the priests are not as great as Melchizedek. Abraham is inferior because he was blessed by Melchizedek. We're told this in verses 6 and 7. He gave him, he apportioned him as his due, a tenth of the spoils for verses 4 and 6. Abraham is lesser, but the priests are also lesser than Melchizedek. Levites who collect a tenth from the people of Israel. But then the author says, if, if, if that confers honor on them, how much more so that they, while still in Abraham's loins, paid a tenth through Abraham to Melchizedek. 
verses 5 and 9 and 10 make that point. And in contrast to the Levites who are mortal men, and he's going to expound on this later in the chapter, Melchizedek literarily, figuratively lives on. He lives, it says, in verse 8. So here's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, high priest who confers blessing on an inferior, high priest who receives gifts that are his due from an inferior, who has no record of birth, who has no record of death, priest of the Most High God, king of the city that would be God's own city itself, the author is saying this, our Savior is a priest and really a priest king like Melchizedek. He's going to teach us a lot more about this in the verses to come. But as we stop at this point and just consider some of the things we can learn, here's some things we can think about Jesus already from the comparison to Melchizedek. First, the kingship. Melchizedek is a king. Jesus is the king. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. Jesus is therefore the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is, remember, the mold, the pattern, the type. If that's what he was, then even more, the reality is found in Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one. Our advocate before the Father, says John in 1 John 2.1. How do we know this? We know this because Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly for us. Never sinned. By his own life and by his own actions, he is holy. He is righteous. Therefore, as a righteous king, what does Melchizedek do? He's a king of righteousness. The implication is his kingdom is a righteous kingdom. His people are a righteous people. He rules righteously. Well, if that's true of Melchizedek, it's even more true of Jesus. He gives righteousness to his people. We repent, we believe in him, and like Abraham, the man of faith, are accounted righteous, credited as righteous because of our faith. And we receive from Christ our sin for his righteousness, that great trade. We receive his righteousness. We wear it like a robe, our identification in him. We are declared righteous, but Jesus does even more than that. He sends the Holy Spirit so that we become righteous as well. Molded more and more into his image, more and more understanding his law, obeying it, following it, loving it, teaching it, learning it. That process of sanctification, being made holy. If Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, even more, Jesus is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a king of peace. Well, if he is a mold, a pattern of the reality that's Christ, then Jesus must be the king of peace, the reality. Now we're righteous before God by grace and through faith in him. Now we have peace with God. We have no fear of judgment, no danger of punishment, no wrath, no hatred, no enmity, no division. Instead, peace, peace with God himself. King of peace. 
But more than that, being joined together in one kingdom, in one family, one household, one body of Christ, we have peace with each other. And as Ephesians says in chapter 2, the wall of hostility between man and man is broken down and true peace comes. You want righteousness. You want peace. You want people around you to be good people and to stop fighting with one another. It's only going to come when Jesus is their king. Think of the efforts that we have in the world around us today to make peace. Or to make people better. Let's start with that. Political correctness. Say the right thing so as not to offend others. The great sin in our society today is making people uncomfortable. It is. That's how we are being judged by those around us. We have etiquette. We have good manners. We see public service announcements on TV or hear them on the radio encouraging us to be better people. The foundation for a better life. Whatever it might be. But none of these things, not the little lessons we learn in school, nothing will help us to be good people. Really, truly good people without Christ. Peace. We try to make peace. We have counselors. We have therapists. We have all sorts of people to help us make peace with ourselves and peace with others. On a national level, we have treaties. We send envoys. We talk. We negotiate. We go to a, a, an international body and pass resolutions. If that doesn't work, we might even try war. Peace through victory in war. And we think, when we establish our own rule, that we've established peace. And that there's still conflict. There's still underlying resentments. Don't believe that? Go to Europe. Go to the Middle East. Talk to the ethnic people there who hate being under the rule of these lousy, stinking overlords. Talk to the Basques. Talk to the people in northern Spain. Talk to the various tribes throughout Europe and the Middle East. Those resentments linger. They don't really ever go away. Why? Because peace only comes really, truly, permanently through Jesus Christ. You want to see peace? If you can, go to Israel and worship with our brother David and see what he's doing with Israelis, with Arabs, with people of other nationalities in a place that's hostile to Christianity, worshiping together in peace and in love. That's peace. Not all this other nonsense. You want righteousness, you want peace, You've got to join the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to him and to his rule. If you want that, (laughs) you need Jesus to bring it because it's not coming any other way. So Melchizedek is a king. Jesus is the king. But Melchizedek is also a high priest, and the author is going to expand on this. If Melchizedek is a high priest, then Jesus must be the high priest who confers a blessing to those who follow him. Author's been urging us now in this book to pursue the blessings of God, pursue the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, pursue them diligently, pursue them energetically, because our high priest is ready and willing to give them to us. 
Quit chasing after angels and prophets and, and, and other nonsense. Quit drinking spiritual milk. Chase, chase the good stuff. Be diligent about that. We have a high priest who's willing to confer blessing upon us. And they are ours through repentance and faith in him. But Jesus, as high priest, also gets what his due. In the Old Testament, it was a tithe. It was a tenth. What do we owe to Jesus? What do we owe to God? Our worship, our praise, our service, our gratitude, our thanksgiving? Or as Romans 12 puts it, the reasonable sacrifice of ourselves in service to him. Again, the author is going to expound on this later as we continue in the book. But suffice it to say that Jesus, as our high priest, confers blessings in abundance upon us, but also is due our worship, our service. The other thing about Melchizedek that we can see in this passage is that he really is a great man. How great this man is to whom Abraham gave a tithe. If Melchizedek is great, then as a pattern, as a type, as a mold for the reality that's in Jesus, then Jesus is even greater. And is that not the key theme that runs through this book? Jesus is greater. Greater than Melchizedek the Great. He deserves our devotion. He deserves our attention, our worship, our praise, our service. And we love great people. We love to study great people. We call them heroes. And we invent heroes. Stories, legends. Celebrate them in song. They're on our TV shows. They're in our movies. We even create mythical superheroes. We look, there's something inherent in the way that we were created to realize <laughs> we're not all that. And so we look for heroes that we can follow, a mentor, someone that we can idolize and emulate and, and do what they did and follow what they did. But when we invent these other things, we're, we're in great danger, and that's what the author's been warning these people against in Hebrews. We're in danger of missing the reality, chasing after other things and missing Jesus Christ. That's been his fear. They admire angels. They admire prophets. They admire Aaron. They admire Moses. But in doing so, they're drinking spiritual milk. They're starving themselves spiritually. They're wasting away. And that wasting away is so dangerous it could lead to even apostasy, which we saw in chapter 6. So for us, again, we need to take these warnings seriously. Jesus is greater than anything. That's what we should be paying attention to. We may not be thrilled with angels or prophets, but we chase after our piddling, puny heroes of today. Sports heroes, political heroes, historical heroes, comic book heroes. Maybe even it's someone we know closely, a mom, a dad, a parent. Son or daughter is hero, whoever it might be. These things divert our attention from the one great one, Jesus Christ the righteous. So this morning, where is your attention? Where's your devotion? Who do you devote your time and energy, your thoughts, your focus, your money, 
your efforts in life to? Who do you devote those things to? Not that we should neglect relationships that God has given to us for our care, but still, in the end, who gets the focus? Who gets the most? Who gets the priority? We're called to make God and His Son, Jesus, the primary focus of our lives. So again, where's your attention? Where's your focus? For the author's audience, it was on great men, great beings, but it was not on Jesus. But the author is calling us again and again and again to the the acknowledgement, the recognition, Jesus is greater than anything. Even this mysterious, wonderful, great priest king Melchizedek. And if he can say this about Melchizedek in verse 4, he can say it even more about Jesus. See how great this man is? See how great this Jesus is? So he urges us, follow him. As we looked at last week, follow where he leads. He's gone as the forerunner. He's paved the way through that curtain into the holiness of God. He says, come on, follow me. He says to God, see that one? They're coming after me. Let's get ready. Follow where he leads through that curtain into the holy presence of God himself. Be blessed and serve in peace and in righteousness and for all of eternity. Let me pray for us. God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this mysterious example of Melchizedek and what he teaches us about Christ. May you uh, equip us with the understanding, the desire, the energy, the ability to follow after Christ with all of our being, to serve him in all that we do, to make him the priority, to make your word and your service and the call that you have placed upon our lives the priority for us. Do not let us neglect the the tasks that you have given us with family and friends and neighbors, but rather through them may we serve you and give you honor and glory as our catechism teaches to, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. May that be true for us. We cannot do it in our own strength, and so do empower us and equip us by your Holy Spirit to be the people you have called us to be and to do the things that you have called us to do. We ask all of this in Christ's holy and wonderful name. Amen.